0: This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor of Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. Uh, my prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at Remember where we've been. What, because this, this book, the book of Hebrews, is a pastoral concern. It's a pastoral letter. And God has spoken through uh, a guy with. It seems to be has a pastor's heart. He's exhorting. He's encouraging. He's challenging these individuals. He really wants them to follow after Jesus, but he needs them to know that if they fall away, if they step away, they're going to lose what they've what they've strived for, what they've what they've been working. So I want to I remind you of what they would be losing because we've seen over the past few months as some beautiful truths. For instance, Jesus sympathizes with us. That is that he knows your temptations and trials. He knows your sin. He knows what you go through because he walked on this earth. He saw his friend's sin. He saw his family sin. He saw the effects of sin. He saw the effects of hate, murder, divorce. He saw the effects of gluttony. He saw the effects of sexual morality. He saw the effects of all of these things. He sympathizes with. He knows what it's like to have a family that abandons him. He knows what it's like to be tried uh, by the devil directly with three cunning ways to try to tempt Jesus. He knows what it's like to go through trials where Pharisees and Sadducees tried to kill him. We're literally chasing after him to kill him. He knows what it's like to endure the human things that we go through that are just hard. And ultimately, he knows what it's like to die. Jesus sympathizes with you. But we also know from this book that we have boldness. Not only does he care for us in our weakness, but he gives us strength. It's like two sides of the coin. You got him caring for us in our weakness, and then you've got us... Him bringing us up into boldness so that when we enter in the throne room of God, we have a confidence in front of the Father knowing that Jesus has saved us. I'm freed and forgiven because of Jesus. So now I stand before the Father, not in fear that I will be kicked out or cast away or spend eternity in hell, but instead that I will spend eternity with my God who loves me in an in a Eden-like state with forever being in His presence and goodness. I have that boldness. I have the sympathy of Jesus, and I have the strength of Jesus. But not only that, I have the rest that Jesus promises. We've seen throughout Hebrews that we have this rest that ultimately the Old Testament uh, people wanted. They desired. They once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the son of god and holding him up to contempt for the good, uh, for the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from god but if it produces thorns and thistles it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned so you can see why people would go to this passage and ask the question can i lose my salvation But I don't think you're asking the right question. What we really should ask is, what is this passage saying? Not ask the passage what we want it to say or what we want to find out. We just simply need to know, what does this passage say? So I want to walk through it with you, showing you what it says, and then what the rest of Scripture says, similar to what it's dealing with. And then hopefully we'll be able to walk away knowing what we can do today differently because of this truth, this passage. So verse 1. Therefore, because of all we read in the past about Melchizedek and his high priest and going to atone for us, therefore, because of that atonement, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. Let us leave this foundational stuff and go on a journey. Now, is this leave in the sense of I'm done with it, I don't need it anymore, or is it grow upon it? That Greek word doesn't give you the idea here of abandoning, but rather strengthening. Uh, That's why it says to go on to maturity. We're not leaving towards a different topic. We're growing on an immature foundational teaching and making it a mature teaching. Uh, For instance, you guys remember 11th grade math? Some of you still there? I don't know. I don't even remember the mathematical terms. I think that something like trigonometry is close. So we're going to go with that. We learned trig back then. We learned maybe some form of Algebra 3. Is that the same thing? That's the same thing, I'm pretty sure. Anyways, we learned math in high school. And I'm so good at remembering it that I don't even know what it's called. So I'm pretty sure that you don't remember it. But maybe some of you in here are mathematicians. Maybe some savants in here. Maybe some really just intelligent people who remember all that stuff that you learned in high school about math. I don't. I remember the basics. But I do remember first grade reading, because I do it every single day. I'm reading in front of you. You read every single day. We talk with language that we've learned in first grade, how to pronounce words with two syllables or three syllables, uh, what different types of grammar are and where the noun is and uh, subject, sorry, subject verb and direct object and indirect object. We learned all that, right? And we've built off on that from then until now. When I was first learning different languages, Greek and Hebrew specifically, I had to relearn the English grammar. I had to strengthen my foundation into a maturity so that I could cross over into another language so that I could remember all those grammatical rules. Okay, we've got to strengthen our elementary teachings, not abandon them. Let us move on Move forward into mature teachings. So then it's going to list out the different teachings. It says, not laying again a foundation of what? Repentance from dead works and faith in God. So what we're saying is we're going to move forward from that. We're not abandoning it. Obviously, we shouldn't abandon teaching about repentance and teaching about faith, but we're going to move forward. We're going to teach you what it means to have a mature faith. A mature repentance. See, immature repentance says, I don't want to do that. Mature repentance says, I'm going to do something about not doing that. We're going to move you towards mature. Where I say, I don't want to do that. And I'm going to put things in my life, things in place where I'm going to grow from that. Faith in God. We're moving from immaturity to maturity. It's not a faith in a God out there. It's faith in a personal God. So I want to learn about him. I want to know him. You know, I'm not going to ask basic level, elementary level questions. I'm going to move forward with who is my God? How can I get to know him? And I'm going to do that. But not only that, we're moving forward into maturity in our teaching. It says in verse two, teaching about what? Ritual washings and laying on hands. Now, I want to break these down into three pairs. All right. The first two, repentance and um, faith, are the beginning of your Christian life. The second two are going to be your growth in your Christian life, and the final two are going to be your future in the Christian life. So these middle two, uh, ritual washings and laying on of hands. The ritual washings that are used throughout Scripture, John chapter 3, John chapter 7, John chapter 9, we see them throughout Scripture as purification. You read it in Psalms when you were reading about David's sin, where we were purified, we are cleansed, white as snow, right? The washings were a purification of our life. They are getting rid of the sin that is in our life. So you can see how we move from beginning to the growth period. The beginning is, I want to repent from this. Now we're starting to grow. What does it look like for me to grow in my Christian life? Well, I'm going to purify myself of anything that is not good. So in my home, I'm going to purify things that I can in my physical life, in my eyes, my mouth, my hands, I'm gonna purify myself of the things I can purify. With coworkers, I'm gonna purify myself of things that I can. That doesn't give you privilege to kick out a coworker, right? It, what it says is, I'm gonna get rid of those things in my life that I can, that I can control, that are a temptation or trial for me, that I can control so that I don't fall into sin. I'm purifying, washing away. The, uh, the sin. That's a that's a step in our growth in Christ. But we also are laying on hands. Laying on hands is in the Old Testament. It has to do with uh, blessings. So generation to generation, they blessed one another through laying on hands. They uh, would lay hands on animals that they were going to sacrifice for atonement uh, to God. They laid on hand hands on those who were going to receive the death death penalty. They laid hands on people who were going to. Uh, do Christian ministry. Two very polar opposite things there. Be careful. Uh, and they also laid hands on people who were struggling with physical health. So they would lay hands and pray for them to, have, uh, to be healed. So all those are vastly different things that you never know what somebody's laying hands on them for. What does it look like for us to grow from immaturity to maturity in that? Well, in your life, you can go with ritual washings and laying on hands. You could say, um, God, wash me clean. But maturity would say, God, use my cleanliness and clean others. I don't know if I'm using the right words. (laughs) That's okay. I always do that. Cleanliness, right? Okay. I'm from the South. Give me a break. Use my cleanliness. (laughs) It's not very clean down there. Um, And help me to clean others. And I'll give you an example. Uh, And I've probably used this before, but I want you to keep remembering because it helps me so much. Um, If your truck, or your car is dirty, let's say your wheel and your car is dirty and you want to clean it, you don't go grab dirty water and a dirty rag to clean it, right? You go grab clean uh, products and a clean rag. So maturity looks like us being purified so that we can go clean others. God using us to purify others, to encourage, exhort, to challenge. Later in Hebrews, it's going to tell us to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We want to challenge people to do what is right. So God, use us. You see, it's shifting. Really what this is doing is it's shifting from selfish to selfless. Laying hands on me. Pray for me. God, do this for me. Right? Laying on hands. Two, I'm going to lay hands on others. It goes from commission me to do ministry to God, use me to commission others to ministry. It's a movement from immaturity to maturity. This whole passage is going to be moving from immaturity to maturity. So that's the growth in your Christian life. But then you have the future Christian life, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We can have immature views of this and we can have mature views of this. Of course, I don't want you to abandon this elementary teaching. I don't want you to leave this foundational truth that you are uh, resurrected from the dead and that, you, that eternal judgment is, true, is coming. And we want to preach that. We want to preach that if you're not following after Christ, there is that future life for you, a future living existence for you that is not going to be good, both on earth and for eternity. And We don't want that. So there's eternal judgment preaching. But what does it look like to go from immaturity to maturity in that? Yeah, I mean, think about physical resurrection from the dead. You can have faith that God is going to raise you from the dead, but that faith really not work itself out in your life. So you might say, I believe that I will one day be raised from the dead, but I'm not going to go help the sick because I'm afraid that I'll get sick too. You might say, I believe that God's going to raise me from the dead, but I'm not willing to go to that nation because I'm afraid that I might die. Now, you've heard me, and if if you're new here, you might not have. I think scripture teaches us wisdom over foolishness and faith over fear. We try to always guide with that direction as pastors at the church. Wisdom over foolishness. Don't go do something foolish that God hasn't called you to. But if God has called you to do it, go and do it. Why? Because I have a mature view of eternal judgment. Because I'm more concerned with God's judgment than I am the world's judgment. I'm more concerned with God calling me somewhere than fear of going somewhere. It's why we go to Haiti. Sometimes people tell us you shouldn't go to Haiti. There's bad things that happen there. Well... We're going to Haiti next week (laughs) because God called us to go. And so we will go. And until God stops that, we won't stop going. And whether that's Brazil or Guatemala or Mexico or Russia or China or the Middle East, somewhere else, wherever that is, we're going to go because we're not going for us. We're going for God. And when you think about eternal judgment, you think about it like this. I got two sides that we could think about. One is. Uh, I don't want to be persecuted. Well, you're going to have physical resurrection from the dead. And then you could th- say, well, I don't want to be persecuted in the sense of words. I don't want people to judge me, like at your workplace. Maybe you don't want to tell people about Jesus at your workplace because you're afraid of what they'll say about you or think about you or how they'll treat you or maybe you'll lose your job or all of these different things. Well, are we more concerned with the word's, world's judgment or are we more concerned with God's judgment? That's what it looks like to move from immaturity to maturity. You could say, I believe God will judge one day but because Jesus has saved me, I'm good. Once saved, always saved, Matt. I'll be all right. Okay, that's not what scripture teaches. It teaches us to move to maturity, to understand that when we are judged, we will stand before God accountable for what we did with the blessing that we were given. And so we stand before God going, you called me to do this and I did it because you called me to do it. I will do what you called me to do because I believe that no matter what, whether I'm judged by the world or persecuted by the world, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Now, as any good encouraging pastor would do, and God speaking through this author, he says in verse three, and we will do this. Now, if you stop there and we will do this, stop there. It looks like it's a human thing. This like whole process is something I'm doing, a thing that I'm doing. Because it says in verse three, and we will do this. Are we going to do this? If God permits, what is God calling you to do? Moving from immaturity to maturity in your life. What does that look like? And what is he doing in your life? Now, I don't think you can separate these two uh, verses, especially this whole passage, out. It's a logical progression. It's the words, in fact, are connected. For uh, In verse 4, it says, for it is impossible. That's connected to the therefore. Therefore, move on from immaturity. Stop being immature. For, verse 4, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were. And he's going to tell you all the immature things. Uh, the people who were immature, what they also experienced. Immature people can also experience these things, all right? Immature in their faith, yet once enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They shared in the Holy Spirit. They tasted God's good word and powers of the coming age, and yet they also have fallen away. Once enlightened, from death to life. Maybe in the Old Testament, the story you see the Israelites being uh, given light. It's new light. It's a, from darkness to light, those kind of things. You've been brought from death to life. It's your salvation experience. But the, but the second phrase he gives us is the gift of salvation. So you, also, you were drawn from dead works to good works, but you were given a gift of salvation. Don't forget, you've been given freedom and forgiveness. Now, when we see that heavenly gift, it could be talking about Romans 5, where it's faith is a gift. It could be talking about Romans 8. Where, or uh, Ephesians 1, where the Holy Spirit is the gift. But because of the first verse and because of the third verse or a third uh, uh, experience who shared in the Holy Spirit, that's probably talking about the Spirit being poured out in your life. This one's probably talking about the heavenly gift of salvation. It's a gift from heaven. The relationship with God being restored. You've been enlightened. Okay, I know what I need. Now I've received the whole, uh, salvation. I've received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been poured out in my life. Uh, yet still immature who tasted God's good word, read the Bible, understood some of the Bible, been given preaching, all those things, and the powers of the coming age. They saw miracles. They, they were able to witness and experience the miracles of God. I'm thinking like Peter, James, John. I'm thinking Judas, man. I'm thinking Saul who saw God working. I'm, I'm thinking these guys who experienced God's miracles on earth and then it says in verse six, "and who have fallen away." So you have immature uh, people who heard elementary teachings but didn't move forward. Who were enlightened? They knew what they needed. They were they tasted the whole heavenly gifts, so they experienced salvation. They experienced Holy Spirit being poured out in their life. They tasted of God's good word. That is, they knew the goodness of it. They experienced the powers of the age to come. That that means that they experienced the miracles of God, which is. Uh, would be an amazing experience and is an amazing experience. And then finally they uh, fell away. And so we, connect, we have to connect these two together to say, okay, what, what is this passage telling us? Not what am I asking? Am I asking, can I lo- lose my salvation? Or what is this passage telling me? This passage is telling us this. Immature people who've experienced these things fall away. Immature people who have experienced these things fall away. But why do they fall away? I think it's important to ask, why do they fall away? Is this passage telling us about what God does or about what humans do? This passage is telling us about what humans do. So what do humans do? Immature humans fall away. That's why at the very beginning of it, what is the purpose of this passage? It says, therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. What is the point of this passage to tell you, us, us, we humans to move from elementary teaching to mature teaching. That's what it wants us to know, to grow in our faith, so that what we don't uh, fall away and we don't fail to renew to repentance. You could ask it like this: Can I lose my salvation? Absolutely. Can you lose your salvation? Well, sure. I mean, it doesn't take. Nobody has to. Don't don't take that as a sound bite, please. Keep listening. Can humans lose their salvation? Of course. We're, we are filthy rags. We are sinful, We do wicked things. We have wicked ideas. Um, just today, you've probably lied to somebody cheated some way some capacity. you've said you're better than you are. Something like that, right? Something has happened where it's caused a little bit of pain in somebody's life. You thought something wicked or evil and you didn't act upon it, hopefully. Or maybe you even acted upon it. Maybe you had a fight with somebody already this morning. All those different things culminate in bad stuff for humanity. So can we lose our salvation? Yeah, we're really good about that. But is God strong? Is God faithful? And does God save us? Yes. Here's a better question than can you lose your salvation? Can you gain your salvation? So if you look throughout scripture and you ask the the question, can I gain my salvation? The answer is always no. I can't gain my own salvation. That's why Jesus comes. The whole point of the New Testament is the Old Testament people continue to fail to be back in the Garden of Eden with God. So God, the father sends his son to restore us back to his presence for eternity through his life, death and resurrection. It's the gospel. I couldn't do it. So he did. And if that's true, of course I can't gain my salvation and also of course I can lose my salvation because it never was mine to gain or to lose so what this passage is basically telling you is immature people who experience all these things can fall away okay I know that but my God's not going to let me fall away here's the thing when you look at this passage you see immature people What what I hope to inspire you to do is to see that this pastor is basically telling his people, or I believe is telling his people from this passage, is telling them to grow to a maturity where they can repent. So I want you to look at this verse again, verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were. Is it impossible for God to renew someone to repentance? That's the question we should ask. I think that might be the question we should ask from this, this passage. This is talking all about humans, all about what we're unable to do. But if you really want to know that question that people ask all the time, can I lose my own salvation? I think you should probably ask, is God able to renew people to repentance? Because usually what people ask is, you know, my, my brother or my friend or my son, daughter or parent is not living for God, but they believed in God at some point. Did they lose their salvation? Well, I I think that the most important thing probably to ask in this is, is God able to save them and is God able to cause them to come to repentance yet again? Well, let me give you an example of someone. There was a man who worked as a fisherman and Jesus walked up to him and he said, hey, will you come follow me? And he left his job, left his career, left his everything, uh, even left a portion of his family. To follow after Jesus. And as he was following after Jesus, he still struggled. He was sinful, very sinful. He wanted Jesus' role. He would often tell Jesus what Jesus should do. And he would often also tell Jesus that he wanted to sit on Jesus' throne, like right beside him. Like I want to rule over these guys. You may have seen this character portrayed in uh, the TV show, The Chosen. His name's Peter in there. And uh, he is in that a very jacked dude, (laughs) <laughs> and, and I think that's probably a great illustration of Peter because Peter was always trying to rule over others. I think he thought he was so big and so strong and so mighty, all those different things, right, that he could be where Jesus was, and he always wanted that. He even told Jesus one time that, uh, he told Jesus what to do. He's like, no, no, you're not going to go there. You're, you're going to, I'm going to protect you, and that was his mindset. I'm going to save you and deliver you so that you can be reigning above Rome, and I'm going to reign there with you. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. For you're thinking about human things, worldly things, not about heavenly things. That guy's name was Peter, right? Peter denies Jesus three times. Now, through that whole story, he is matured. He is growing. He's being challenged. He's being discipled by Jesus. If anybody can disciple well, it's Jesus, right? So he's being discipled by Jesus. And yet at the end of his ministry... When he should be praying, he was sleeping. When he should have been acknowledging Jesus, he was denying Jesus. He denies him three times. What's the worst sin we can do? So everybody asks me, what's the um, unforgivable sin? What's that unforgivable sin? Denying the Holy Spirit. That is what scripture says it is. Denying Jesus' salvation and gifting of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. Because it's the one sin that denies Jesus of the forgiveness that covers all sins. So if that's true, Peter did it three times. Three times. If there's anybody in this world who, as you've seen later in this passage, it says recrucified Christ, and the actual word there is just crucified Christ. If anybody in this world has crucified Christ, it was Peter three times. The crowd said crucify him and repeated it. His follower, the guy who left his whole career and family to follow after Jesus and matured through the discipleship process, denied him three times. Surely that guy would definitely be accounted for in this passage where it says, and who have fallen away. Those people, they cannot be restored, right? But then later after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, he raised from the dead, he comes to Peter and he says, do you love me? And he says, do you love me? And he says, do you love me? Three times, restoring Peter's three times of denial. And God restores Peter through Jesus, not just to be somebody, not just to be a immature Christian. God restores Peter to be a church leader, probably the greatest church leader of all time, to plant churches with Paul throughout the New Testament. And even so, that same guy probably knew a lot about patience, right? Especially God's patience. He wrote in Second Peter Chapter 3, verse 9. He said that God desires that none would be perished, but that all would come to repentance. That none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Because he knew what it was like for God to be patient with him. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Repentance. God's being patient with the immature. God's being patient with this. But but I think here's the thing that helps us so much with this passage. Peter was matured throughout that process to the point where when Jesus says, do you love me? He could respond, yes, I love you. Three times. Be in a place of maturity where you can repent from sin. That's what I would encourage you to do. Be in a place of maturity where you can repent from sin. Can God cause anybody to repent? Absolutely. Anybody. Your brother, son, daughter, friend, co-worker, parent, whoever is far from Christ doing wicked and evil things that you're thinking about right now in your mind, can God cause them to repent? Uh, absolutely. What this passage is talking about is people who are already in the church following after Jesus, who are considering trials and temptations and kind of wavering in between the two, and the author is saying to them, mature, be at a point of maturity where you don't fall away, fall away where you need Christ to restore you, God to restore you, because you've fallen so far away that the only thing that can restore you, because humans can't do it, is God. In other words, wash yourself, purify yourself, Let others lay hands on you. Lay hands on others. Get to the point where you're strong enough that when you're repenting, it's a continual repentance. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. You're not going back to it going, I think I want that. And when you're engaging in it, you're like, everybody's like, that's not good for you. And the only one that can restore you from that is God the Father. And then people are asking the question, can God do that? And you're like, absolutely God can do that. Will God do that? I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It's not up to me to know who God's going to save and who's not God's not going to save. I can't determine that. I'm your pastor, but I'm not like I'm not Jesus. I'm not separating out the wheat and the chaff. I'm not doing that. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to tell you God's word. And so as we do that, what we're telling you is that God has control. He's sovereign. He permits and doesn't permit whoever he wants. And if that's true, if God's doing that, then You know, I don't know if he's going to save your son, daughter, or somebody who's far away. I I tend to think that God's character shows that he probably will, just because that's God's gracious character. Somebody's coming to faith in him, probably. But I don't know. I think we see throughout Scripture that God's really faithful in those examples. Unbelievably merciful and gracious. His grace is astounding. But I will tell you there's a warning here. That's what I do know. I didn't know that if you're at the end of a ledge, if you're on a cliff and you're looking over that cliff and it's a, you know, really far drop down there, can you fall off that cliff? Absolutely. Will you fall off that cliff? No, because God's holding you. John 10 tells us that he holds us. Nobody can steal us from him. And so if that's true, then yeah, I just believe that God's going to hold you based on his word and his scripture. But you got to remember that with immaturity, even if you've tasted the good, even if you've seen the miracles, even if you know God's word, you might've memorized the whole thing. And you've seen every miracle possible. You've led a hundred people to salvation. You've gone on every mission trip. You know what it looks like to go from death to life. Even if you're there, if, even if you're there, you can still fall away with immaturity. So what I'm challenging you to do is move towards maturity. Move towards maturity because you can fall away. Uh, so this passage is probably more about the inability of humans to save themselves than it is about God's inability to save a wayward Christian. This passage is probably way more about our inability to save ourselves than it is about God's inability to save a struggling Christian, a struggling individual, anybody. And this text isn't even necessarily talking about that. This is just talking about what we do when we fall away. So when we look at this passage, we probably go, hey, how can I stay near to Jesus? I can mature from elementary things. I can grow from just believing in God to telling others about their faith in God and letting that faith uh, grow in me to the point where I don't doubt things that God's doing in my life. And he concludes with some illustrations, really kind of two illustrations. The first one is that they're crucifying the Son of God. He sa- it says that this is because to their own harm, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to content. So their sin is causing them to literally go, okay... It's not literal. It's not like Jesus goes to the cross every single time. Some people have said that. Um, it's, it's, this is an illustration of what happened. They're basically saying, I don't care about what you did on the cross. I don't care about what you did on the cross. I don't care about what you did on the cross. That's very different than what we do with the Lord's Supper. We say, I remember the cross and make me live different. What they do is they say, I don't care about what Jesus did on the cross. I'm going to live the way I want to live. So he says, it's like they were crucifying the son of God and holding him up to contempt. But then he gives us another illustration. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed. And at the end will be burned. So that, you know, obviously that shows you that those who are immature, those who have fallen away are going to experience those things. We have to maturely come to this text and say, what does this text tell us? That's what this text tells us. What this text doesn't tell us is what God's going to do for those who are struggling. It doesn't tell us that in the middle of that worthless, cursed, struggling, sinful, depraved Peter, God's not going to come back to him and save him. It doesn't mean that your brother your sister your daughter your son who you feel like has been taking that place of that very last verse is not going to still experience God's grace it doesn't mean that he's not going to wake them up this isn't a guarantee that those who have fallen away are going to experience eternity separated from God it is saying that those that that's where they're headed that's what's going that's what's coming but God can do whatever he wants with immature individuals, with people who have fallen away, with struggling people. He can do whatever he wants to do. It's not up to us whether people are saved or not. I don't know, but God does. He, the only thing got, we've got to remember from this passage is this. We've got to go from immaturity to maturity. How can I do that? The strength of God. I can't do that on my own. I need my God. So what do I need? I need my God what do we need today? We need our God. So what are we going to do today? We're going to depend upon God. Can I lose my salvation? I mean, I'm, I'm a human. Of course I can, but I never gained it anyways. So is God going to lose me? No way. No way. God's not going to lose you. You might run away from him, but he goes and finds that, that one. He leaves the 99 and finds the one. So my prayer for you today is that you will have a reassurance in the promises of God that He is going to strengthen us. He's going to redeem those who He's called His children. Those are all true. But that we also need to be warned that we can walk away, we can fall away, we can run away from Jesus in our immaturity. And I would be wrong as your pastor (laughs) not to remind you that your salvation was never gained by you, so it can't be lost by you. Only Jesus can determine who is saved and not saved. This passage isn't telling you what Jesus is going to do. It's only telling you what happens to people who fall away. Let us pray that Jesus will renew people to repentance because it's impossible for us to do it. It says it's impossible. It's impossible for you to renew to repentance. Anybody. You can't renew anybody to repentance, but God can. God can take Peter and wake him up. You know who else he can take? Saul. If he can take them, he can take you. He can renew people back. Barnabas. I don't know who the next one is. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's one of your family members or friends or coworkers. I don't know who it is, but I know my God can do it. It's not impossible for him, but it's just impossible for us. So what's God going to do? Maybe today you came here and you're like, man, Matt, I would just really like to know what's going to happen to my child, my friend, coworker." I don't know. God knows. Here's what I do know. Pray for them. Pray that God will renew them to repentance because they probably can't because they didn't have the maturity. They didn't they never move from elementary teaching to a mature teaching. Probably, I'm assuming. I don't know but just pray for them. Pray that maybe they had a strong move from elementary to mature, and maybe they will renew to repentance. Or maybe pray that God will, even in their immaturity, in elementary teaching, maybe God will still wake them up. And I don't know what he'll use. I don't know if he'll use you. I don't know if he'll use somebody after you've gone, gone long gone. But I trust that my God can wake people up from death into life, no matter where they are. If he can do it for Peter, I believe he can do it for you. So uh, I want to, as the band comes forward, give you three gospel responses. First, hear the warning. This is a warning, y'all. It's a straight up like challenge to you. Don't stay in your elementary status. If you do, you might fall away. And if you fall away, you might find yourself separated from God. Like I never had faith. I never was saved. I never always, I don't know. But I just encourage you, receive this warning and move from elementary teachings to mature teachings in faith in Christ. Uh, My second is to, uh, if you've moved on from that immaturity and you've received that, would you in your life steward the good blessings that God has given you? so that you can do it for others. Take that warning and go, okay, I have been ritually washed. I am pure. I have had hands laid on me. I've been called to ministry. I'm gonna go do that. I'm moving from elementary to mature things by taking that blessing and I'm going to mature that and give it to others. I'm gonna help others grow in their faith now. And third, would you trust in the security of God's promises? This week is it's very challenging because uh, some people probably want me to preach one way or the other. I don't know. I want to preach what the Bible says, like what it says, not what I want it to say. But I also know what's coming next. I know what's coming next week. That's why I say this this way. we got to hold on to this warning just knowing that like, yeah, I can fall away because I know my human status. But next week is a promise. He promises them. He's like, man, you're not going to fall away because I know God's working in you. You're not going to fall away. Like, I want you to receive that promise today and cling on to that. I'm not going to fall away because I know my God is holding me. I'm not going to fall off this cliff because I know that my God's holding me. I've moved from elementary things to uh, mature things. I'm not going to fall away. My God's got me. He saved me in the first place. I didn't save myself. Let's wrestle with this, church. Let's wrestle with this and discover what God has for us as we grow into maturity. Let me pray for you as we continue to worship. Father, we love you. We trust your word that it is good and that in our inability to, as humans, understand sometimes, Father, we seek to know. We seek to know what you are telling us and how to live differently because of it. I pray, Father, that even in our inability to renew ourselves to repentance and renew others to repentance, God, that you will wake us up from death to life like you did Peter and Saul, like you did all the disciples after they failed so miserably. I pray, God, that you would wake us up into the ministry that you have for us. God, would you renew us to repentance? I pray, Father, right now in this room that you would challenge men and women, teenagers, to repent from wickedness in their life, from evil in their thoughts and in their actions. Would you use this moment, God, to wake people up, including myself. So, Father, we love you and trust you in your son's name. Amen you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after jesus uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey